0: Stephen Christie is a graduate of Emerson College with a degree in film and television, but claims that he can't write, or draw, comic books, that is. That hasn't stopped him, however, from leaving his own indelible mark on the comic book industry. As editor-in-chief of RK Entertainment, Stephen has shepherded a long list of critically acclaimed titles into comic shops and bookstores around the world, and is a big reason the award-winning indie publisher has achieved a level of success most publishers would envy. Growing up in Chicago to an upper-middle-class family, Steven's love of comics was passed on from his father with titles such as Classics Illustrated and The Adventures of Tintin, and not your prototypical superhero books. Steven's personal eclectic tastes and interests are the perfect fit for the wide-ranging and award-winning stories published by Archaea, including the swashbuckling anthropomorphic tale Mouse Guard, fantasy steampunk sci-fi masterpiece Return of the Dapper Men, and Tale of Sand, a mystery set in the American Southwest based on an unpublished Jim Henson screenplay. We talked to Stephen about the process of evaluating submissions, graphic novels versus monthly titles, and the differences between the big two comic book publishers Marvel and DC and Arkea. All that and more on the Scripts and Scribes podcast right now. Welcome to the Scripts and Scribes podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Fukunaga, and today we're speaking with Archaic Comics Editor-in-Chief Stephen Christie. Uh, Thanks for joining me today, Stephen.
1: Thanks so much for having
0: me. Now, you're the Editor-in-Chief of Archaic Comics, um, a very successful award-winning indie publisher. Uh, Your titles cover sort of a wide range of genres from noir to adventure to horror to sci-fi, children's tales even, with a, a lot of the Jim Henson stuff. Uh, the Fraggle Rocks and Dark Crystal. Um, How would you describe the Arkea brand for those who aren't necessarily familiar with you guys?
1: You know, it's it's funny because we, when I kind of break it down to its most basic, it's, I I like to say that it's comics for people who don't read comics. Um, And what I mean by that is just really trying to do kind of stuff that you wouldn't find from more mainstream companies stuff that you wouldn't find from superhero companies or you know some of the other creator owned companies books that you can hand to people that have never read a comic book before and because the book is so well constructed and well made and well produced and the art is hopefully you know so good and the story so good that mm-hmm. they can just pick it up and kind of be transported not only into a different world, but really, you know, use that book as a gateway to get them into comics as a whole, you know, a, a, as a medium.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: That's kind of a lofty goal for a you know, <laughs> book, but but that's that's really what we strive for. That, that's what we try to do. You know, sometimes we hit it, sometimes we don't. But um, we're very lucky that we're a company where we we really have a little bit. Of, we have a book for any anyone and a book for everyone, really. And right. that's a little, you know, I guess. Not super focused sometimes from, from a brand standpoint, but um, the good thing is that it's it's th- there. We really can meet any uh, any person, any new reader, and find something that they'll love out of our library. Right. So,
0: and I, I, you've described um, the production process at Arkea as more of a, a producing a film, so to speak. And what I mean by that is you, you produce graphic novels, books, not issues, not monthly issues like a, a lot, most traditional publishing, comic book publishing companies. Um, and because of that, you're able to put a lot more time and effort into e- making it the best it can possibly be. Can you maybe talk a little bit about that philosophy that Archaea has in terms of Let's producing it- good material?
1: It's interesting because you know, for, for people familiar with the entertainment industry, it, it's like it's a difference between being on a TV show and producing a TV show and producing a film. Um, because you know, when when you're doing a TV show, you're kind of you're feeding the beast, basically. I've heard a lot of TV writers that I know talk about that, where it's like you know, you, you got to get those episodes done, you got to get those episodes done, right? And that's really, the way that mainstream comics are, you know, you have a monthly schedule. Um, sometimes you're shipping two issues a month, like you know Marvel is doing with a lot of their titles, and you need to feed the beast. You have to keep people producing, you have to keep those books coming out because that's the way you make money, and that's and that's the way that these products are. They're they're monthly things, um, you know, w- with kind of a uh, an audience that's already there and ready for them and hungry for them, and. That's the way most companies do it. What, what we do, because we don't really do any single issues and we're, we're really more graphic novel focused,
2: mm-hmm.
1: what it does is that that really allows us the time uh, necessary to kind of sculpt and craft uh, a book. You know, the, the, you can't imagine the difference between you know starting a mini series or, or, or an ongoing series with all of the, all of the issues written versus uh, having an entire graphic novel script written. Being able to sit down with an artist and do rough thumbnails for an entire book, you mm-hmm. know, so it's all your storyboarding your movie, and it's such a it's such a more fun creative process because you're you're working with uh, a piece as a whole, and you're able to see, all right, you know what, maybe maybe we can take some of this out. Maybe we need an, um, an emotional beat here. Maybe we need a a little extra space here uh, for this scene, and. The thing I love about it is that you can really paint and you can sculpt. Um, there's so many times where we're producing books when, uh, even when we've gone through like the layout stage and, and stuff like that, we put the thing together and you know, we decide, you know what, we, we could really use an extra page or two here to make this sequence really sing. We, we just did that on um, a Dark Crystal book that I'm working on, a, a prequel Dark Crystal graphic novel um, to the Jim Henson movie. And we got the whole book finished, and we were like, you know what? Let's. Uh, th- th- there's one or two places here where we could insert, you know, just one or you know, one extra page just to make the scene pay off that much more. And mm-hmm. we had the ability to go ahead and do that. And that's not really something you can do when you're doing monthly books. So it's a, it's a much better way to work. All, all my friends at Marvel and DC, when I talk to them, they're they're like, oh, you you know, you haven't so lucky. You you have no idea how. I I wish I could you know be able to do. Books the way that you guys do on such a kind of leisurely scale, you know, right? So uh, leisurely, it's just you know, it's just a completely different production process.
0: Right, right. You have the ability and time to be not on a set specific monthly, month by month deadline. Yeah. That that you can ensure everything is up to your standards um, over a, a longer period of time to get that book just right. Exactly. Exactly. And. Again, graphic novels are such a huge part of the industry nowadays. You go into every bookstore that used to have a small, tiny rack of monthly comics. Now they're just shelves and shelves of graphic novels. And uh, it's something that can be published over, you know, they can go back to their catalog and publish all of the older material and continually have it in publication to attract new fans and get people into an entire story as opposed to just a tiny little 22-page comic that is handed to kids to keep them busy on an airplane, so to speak, or back in the day, I guess. Exactly. Um, so, uh, oh, go ahead.
1: Oh, no, I, was, I was just going to say, the, you know, the, the, uh, the funny thing about uh, about that is, is that it's from a business standpoint. Mm-hmm. Uh, monthly comics, when they're on the shelf, they're, they're just on the shelf for a week. You know, they come out that Wednesday and then they're gone the next Wednesday. And the right. reason why graphic novels have become so important to publishers is, is not just not just in terms of keeping the work in print, which is obviously something that you, you want to do with stuff that you've worked so hard on. Um, but it's 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 a, an amazing cash flow thing because those books are always on the shelf. So if you have a twenty-five dollar book that you know maybe sells a hundred copies a month, and you can count on that book to regularly sell a hundred copies a month, that's a thousand dollars in revenue to you. Um, you know, from a wholesale standpoint as a mm-hmm. company, um, every month off of one title. Um, you take a company like DC or Marvel, Dark Horse, Image, something like that. Um, you know, and then you add together all of the titles that they have that are doing that well. And it's really, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a ton of books. It's a ton of books. And, and it's easy to see how, um, you know, those guys can build a successful business from that.
0: Right, right. And I mean, um, talking about the big publishers and talking about that sort of entertainment connection. Um, I know you studied film and TV at Emerson College in Boston. Um, And I also know that Arkea is heavily involved in Hollywood with a number of your guys' titles being uh, optioned or purchased for development of films and and things. Um, How did you personally become involved in comics from your background in film and television?
1: Well, you know, I I always loved comics growing up as a kid. I've been reading comics since I was six years old. And when I went to Emerson, I originally went in, weirdly enough, as a radio major because I I did a lot of radio work uh, in Chicago. Um, in high school, but I very quickly uh, started work on a TV show and formed uh, my own production company with a few friends, and started doing uh, TV shows for both the college TV station and like uh, local cable access channels and stuff like that. You know,
2: mm-hmm.
1: classic college stuff. But um, <laughs> I uh, I was always a comic book fan, and in the summers uh, during school, you know, during studying film and TV. I was lucky enough that the summer between my freshman and sophomore year, I got an internship at Devil's Due Publishing,
2: Mm
1: -hmm. um, which I then, you know, through the connections I made there, I kind of parlayed that into the next summer, an internship at Marvel Comics in New York. Um, And then the summer after that, I did DC Comics. So in between while I was getting this great education at Emerson in film and television, um, you know, I was kind of educating myself every summer in – you know, in comics. And it it was such a great experience because to go from Devil's Due, which was a small press company in my neighborhood and see how a smaller company worked and operated uh, to going to then, you know, Marvel and DC and getting to meet everyone there and see how those bigger companies operate and develop relationships there. I mean, it was, it was fantastic. It was, it was great training and it really kind of gave me a lot more knowledge and a lot more perspective on, what it was really like to actually work in the comics industry and not just be, you know, a, a fan, which, which I was up until that point, so. Mm-hmm.
0: Now, having interned at both Marvel and DC, uh, yeah. how are they different from Archaea other than obviously the subject matter, uh, them doing mostly superhero books, um, and you're doing almost everything but superhero books, um, and as well as the monthly versus uh, graphic novel type format. Um, in other words, what did you take away from your time at Marvel and DC and how does that affect how you run Archaea?
1: Well, you, you know, I, I took away, there, there's a lot of stuff I took away from it. I mean, you know, obviously it's like the, the, the most interesting thing was actually just seeing the differences between Marvel and DC as companies. Mm-hmm. You know, Marvel at the time, Ike Perlmutter, the CEO of Marvel, is, is a notorious penny pincher. And I remember Mar- Marvel in their new offices. Now they've been in there a little over a year. They're still very small, but uh, the Marvel offices back then, you know, it's like it's like you're you're a kid and you're like, oh my god, I'm going into Marvel, and they were so small and so cramped with uh you, you know just a lot of people kind of uh, tied in there. And and you know people forget at the time this was 2005. They weren't that far away from coming out of their bankrupt- uh, bankruptcy. You know, mm-hmm. I think they were like five or six years, if not maybe a little bit more, out of coming out of their bankruptcy. And, um, you know, they were still keeping, running a very, very tight ship. And uh, the name of the game with both those companies is that, you know, they have these iconic characters that generate hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars in licensing revenue. And their comics business is kind of a small part of, of their company. You know, they're, they're, they have licensing divisions, they have entertainment divisions. Their publishing divisions, um, while still a big force, are a smaller part of their company. And the job of the publishing divisions is that we know that there's, you know, two, three hundred thousand people that go into comic book stores on a regular or semi-regular basis. We need to be feeding them content as much as possible. Right. And as often as possible, you know, and, and that's where I think um, the the machine... Uh, the assembly line nature of of those comics uh, comes into play, you know, where where it's like it's just an ongoing, never ending soap opera. Um, so it, it was it was interesting to see that. And of course, you know, one of the best things about it was learning from the people there, because, um, you know, regardless of what you think about, you know, if you're a fan of superhero comics or not, I mean, the, the people at Marvel and DC were just so nice and so supportive and and almost everyone there just loved their jobs and really really appreciated being there um you know they 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 were they were happy to be getting paid to make comic books every day and uh and that passion was something that really kind of uh stuck with me and i could see how important that that passion was in order to be able to weather and kind of persevere through all of the ups and downs that you have not just in this career but you know in, in any career in life, basically, so so the, the, those were kind of the big things that, that I I walked away from, um, and just tried to you know tried to take the passion that I saw, and uh, and apply that elsewhere where I went.
0: Right, right. So um, I, I wanted to go back really quickly and talk about uh, Hollywood and talk about that sort of trend uh, due to the popularity of. Everything from Batman and Superman to The Walking Dead, Men in Black, uh, even random offshoots of things like A History of Violence or Road to Perdition, which were once comics, um, made into films. Um, and as a, as a, a screenwriter uh, who used to own a comic book store, when I meet with producers and executives and they find out that I used to own a comic book store, one of the big questions always is, do you know any good comic book properties? Uh, and what is your opinion of, of Hollywood sort of pursuing the next great film or TV series within the comic book industry?
1: You, you know, people, Hollywood needs material. I mean, it, it, it's, it's so funny because it's like, a, on, on one hand, you have companies like Marvel and DC and all these other companies. You, you know, our job is to pump out material. Our job is to sell books, to sell product. Hollywood needs material, and, and, and they need it so desperately because the thing is, is you know, most producers don't create stuff on their own you know they're, they're they're looking to screenwriters or to to books or to you know properties that already exist out there in some form or another and uh, and they, they constantly need, need material and i think that there's something there's something very different about a producer walking in with like hey i've got this idea you know or it's like i've got this spec script um you know take a look at it. it's really cool There's a big difference between that and walking in with something uh, physical, Mm -hmm. something published, something that something that someone else has spent money on already, and um, you know that that's I I think for whatever reason that's still kind of a very important and palpable thing because it's comics are the simplest way of conveying an idea. There's a reason why. You know, they're, a, they're a hybrid between, you know, prose and pictures. And that's why comics as a storytelling medium are so powerful because they've taken prose, they've taken the art of words, and they've taken the, the, the visual art of pictures, and they've, you know, combined them together into this rocket ship, basically, if you will. And the reason why it resonates so much with film and TV executives is because when you have such a powerful tool for telling stories – and when you can convey stories so easily, it's so much easier just to show a comic to people and have them see it and be like, oh, okay, I get that. Because I'm not just reading a spec screenplay, I'm reading a story that has already been visualized for me. Mm-hmm. You know, I start to see the movie in my head now. Um, you know, so I, I think that's really the, one of the reasons why now more than ever, you know, people are always looking to comics for a... Uh, you know, for material, basically.
0: Right. And you've had at Archaea a number of titles of your guys' titles, uh, purchased an option developed into films and things. Everything from Feeding Ground to The Killer, Rust, Tumor, um, to Warner Brothers and Fox. But what I wanted to ask you was how much how frequently are you contacted about your titles? And, or how much of your time do you spend like, shopping this material around town?
1: It's, uh, it's a huge part of my job. It's funny because my, my title is editor in chief, but really I'm, I'm more like, you know, creative director. I, 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 I don't know. I don't even know what my, my technical title should be because uh, I, I do supervise the comics a lot, but, um, you know, it, it's kind of to the point now where we, I spent the first like year or two of my time as Editor-in-Chief. Before I was EIC, I was quote-unquote Director of Development. Mm-hmm. And I was primarily focused on the Hollywood side of the business back then. This was like three years ago. Then when I was promoted to Editor-in-Chief, the owner of Archaea, um, uh, PJ Bickett, he he said, I really need you to focus on the comics. I, I want you to focus on the comics and just like build the brand identity for Archaea and, and build what this needs to be. So I took about a year and a half and I have really, really spent a lot of time working on the comics and kind of, um, I, I don't want to say creating a house style because we have so many different artists or things like that, but a house style when it came to production, which, which means basically, you know, just for us making every book, a work of art, you know, ma- making a, a book from a physical standpoint, uh, like something that you could put on your coffee table and just be beautiful to look at on its own. Um, And when we kind of established that, we have have a wonderful editor working with us named Rebecca Taylor, and and she does a lot. I would say she does probably uh, 75% of the editing for our titles, you know, besides maybe like four to five books a year that I edit myself or, you know, the few books that our publisher edits. But um, most of my time now is devoted to Hollywood and it's devoted to kind of uh, working on and checking in and kind of pushing along the projects that we have in motion and then uh, packaging and putting together uh, pitches for the new projects that we have coming down the pipelines.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and that's a lot of my time now. I mean, that's a, that's a big part of our business and because we have a lot of different things set up, there's, there's a lot of work to do. And it's funny cause there's eight people working at Arkea, but I, I'm just kind of one person. I don't have an assistant myself or anything. So I have to do almost everything that I do completely on my own.
0: Right. Um, And as editor-in-chief, in uh, in addition to fielding the phone calls from Hollywood and obviously uh, uh, promoting your material, because uh, I think it's it's, it's a rust or tumor that hasn't come out yet that actually you've been able to uh, sell.
1: Rust, uh, Rust is out. The, the se- both of them are out. Oh, out.
0: okay. Yeah. Uh,
1: Tumor, Tumor's been out for about three years. Okay. Uh, and uh, Rust, the second volume just came out, but we did sell Rust before uh, the book was out, which was a lot. Of-
0: right. That's probably what I was thinking of. Um, but other than, than dealing with Hollywood, um, as editor-in-chief, how much of your time involves... Um, going through new submissions and developing new titles versus sort of the fostering and editing and producing the projects you already have.
1: Um, That's, that's a fair amount of time. It's funny because Archea is one of the few companies that has an open submissions process, but, um, but it's been an interesting time. The last, uh, the last six months or so, because the the company's kind of um, pared down the number of titles that it's doing every year. And because uh, we've pared that down, and, and we're trying to do less instead of, you know, do less better instead of doing more not so well, basically. Right. right. In doing that, we have very, very, very few slots that are open right now. Mm-hmm. So we've become really selective in our kind of submissions process, and I don't think we've greenlit anything, you know, from that we've gotten from like open submissions as opposed to stuff that we've gotten from people that we've worked with in the past or partners or anything like that. I don't think we've greenlit anything new in the last like four or five months, weirdly enough, maybe one, one or two things. Um, you know, so we we do have an open submissions policy and I I do spend time, uh, as those come in kind of looking them over and and checking them out. And, you know, it's so funny because it, it reminds me almost of the music industry in a weird way Mm -hmm. where, we and a lot of other publishers are looking for submissions that are kind of fully formed, if you will. Sure. You can't really go to a publisher and be like, hey, I've got this idea or I've got this script. Um, you know, because publishers, th- th- there's no time. No one has any, any extra time around. And, you know, the, we really don't develop people on a submissions basis. Right. Um, what we're looking for is, is we look for people who come to us where it's either a writer artist or, you know, or a writer and an artist teamed together, uh, kind of giving us a full book proposal, not just with, uh, you know, written stuff in a script and a summary, but also finished artwork from the book. You know, we usually like to see like five to 10 pages of finished artwork. Um, Mm -hmm. Because what we want to see as a publisher is we want to see, we want, we need the creators to tell us, this is what the book's going to look like. This is what it's going to feel like. This is what it's going to be. Um, because that is what makes the decision for us to move forward as easy as possible. Um, I- I'm sure you know from from your Hollywood adventures, it's like <laughs> everyone's looking for a reason to say no. Right? And if there's any ambiguity or anything where it's like, oh, I'm not sure about that, or like, well, what if this or what if that, people just say no. Because it's like they, they don't want the hassle. They they don't want to have to develop it out. It's it sounds awful in a certain way to say because it's like, you know, you could say, well, there's, I'm sure there's diamonds in the rough that if they get the right, you know, development and right encouragement, they could really, you know, become something. And I, I think that's totally true. But unfortunately, that today more than ever is something that creators have to do on their own. Mm-hmm. And have to bring themselves to a publisher and show what they can do. Um, so that's kind of a downside. Now the upside is that because of the internet and because of, um, you know, just, just the way our world is now, there's so much more material out there for creators to use to train themselves to get better at their craft and to get better at what they do. Um, the one mistake that I see creators make all the time is that, you know, they'll submit work to us and it's like they, they don't have an understanding of their own talents in a weird way. And it, it sounds awful that now, you know, I'm, I'm saying it this way, but it's <laughs> like you send in a book and if you look at it and it's very, very obviously not up to the level of quality mm-hmm. that this any publisher publishes, um, it's not going to happen. You know, it, it's, 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 it's just not going to happen. And it's almost like, you know, better for you to hold back and keep practicing and keep getting better because, you know, if, if you make that first introduction and people see your work and it's not good, you know, they, they will remember that if they remember you, you know, and, and right. you get better and you come back and hopefully you can impress them again. Or, you know, you come back and they're like, oh, it's this guy again. You know, so it's, it's, it's awful to say, but I mean, people really need to kind of, uh, creators really need to kind of take it into their own hands to train themselves and to really kind of build their skill set from the ground up.
0: Right, right. That's good advice. Yeah. Um, now, how many books a year does Archaea publish? I mean, you said you're you've sort of lowered the number of books to sort of increase the quality and the time you can spend on every book, um, but how many books a year approximately do you guys like what is your ideal number?
1: Well, this year I think we did about thirty or thirty five, mm-hmm. and I think next year we're going to be around like high twenties. I, I think like, you know, 24 to 30 is our ideal number right now. Um my ideal number of course would be like 10. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I wish we because I I uh, you know that, that's that's why I'm, you know, the editor and, and not the publisher's because I, I always want more time. I always want more time, more more resources to to work on stuff to make it as good as possible. Sure. Um you know, a business is a business. So right. um I think we're going to be around 24 to 30, including reprints from now on going forward. You know, although we might, we might scale back more at some point, you know, it all depends on the market basically. Mm
0: -hmm. Now, since you don't publish monthlies, um, do you work on a specific release schedule? Like you want to have two to three books every month so that it's sort of evenly distributed or do you just publish books whenever the projects are ready to go and, you know, if you have a month that's dark, that's okay.
1: Uh, it's a combination of both those things. I kind mean, of, you know, it, it's like we want, we, we want to make sure that we're putting stuff out every month, obviously. Um, and then, of course, there, there's certain realities of when projects come in and, and when they're, they're getting done that, you know, you have to work around. So it, 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 it's a little bit of both. You know, we, we want certain titles every month, but at the same time, you know, it's like a project isn't done until it's done. You know what I mean?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So that, that's, kind of, that's kind of where... You know, you know how, how we build our schedule, basically.
0: Right. So. Um, now, for comic book writers, creators that are submitting to Arkea, you've already given any creator, whether you're a comic book creator or a screenwriter, good advice to obviously take your time and do the best work you can before you start uh, submitting, because sometimes, again, that first impression... Um, as a publisher, what kind of material, what kind of stories, what kind of projects are you looking for or do you tend to uh, gravitate towards? I know you like or I've heard you respond to things with a positive message or experience. And even in the stuff that's sort of darker, uh, there is that sort of message in a lot of your uh, books. There's this a positive something you can take from that. Um Yeah. But what kind of stuff do you gravitate towards?
1: I mean, I I just like to see stuff that I haven't seen before. You yeah. know, I mean, that, that's really the best thing. It's like when, when you go, you know, when you go to a comic book store and you're seeing, um, you know, you, you can kind of see what's out there in the market and see what people are doing. I, I love things that I've never seen before, stuff that wows me. I love I love when when we get a submission or, or a piece from an artist or or a writer where it's just their own artistry is so good that I almost like get a talent crush on them basically mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> for lack of a better word. Like um, when we did this book, uh, uh, Jim Henson's tale of sand, which was a lost screenplay um, written by Jim that we turned into an original graphic novel. It was kind of our biggest book of last year. Um, you know, we auditioned a number of artists for it and then uh, we auditioned this guy named Ramon Perez and Ramon turned in two samples for the book that he did and just completely blew us away, not only with how well he handled the material, but how obviously incredibly talented he was. And that got me really excited more than anything was I was like, Okay, not not only is he gonna do a great job adapting the book, but here's someone who is so talented that we have the chance to put on a project that's gonna bring him so much more recognition mm-hmm. in you know, and, and that stuff like that gets really exciting because it's like when, when you can when you can introduce an audience to someone new and say like, hey, this is someone that you should pay attention to. There's n- there's nothing kind of more fun than that as a as an editor. Um, we did the same thing with Janet Lee, who did Return of the Dapper Men. That that was her first uh, graphic novel. David Peterson, when he published Mouse Guard, he was a he was an unknown, and we kind of brought him on board basically. And uh, you know, published, published his book for the first time. Uh, David Marquez, who did a book with us called Syndrome, and then another book called Days Missing. You know, now he's drawing Ultimate Spider-Man,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and you almost feel like a proud papa, kind of. Thing. <laughs> you see these these people, you know, kind of. And Arcade is a great company for that. I mean, we we don't have the money. You know, we're we're not like Image Comics. Even it's like we can't really get those big name creators. I, I wish we could. But we're not really the right company for that, I mean, we, and we never really have been. Well, what we've been is we're the company that will take a chance on a first-time writer or a first-time artist mm-hmm. uh, you know, and really kind of put a lot of, uh, a lot of effort into making their book beautiful and getting their book out there. Um, Royden Lepp, who's the creator, writer, and illustrator of Rust, is a great example of that. Um, you know, he would never done a, a full-length graphic novel before, and and you know, we we did Rust, and we really put a lot of love and you know attention and, and care into that. Um, and it got out there. <laughs> you know, I this is a funny story, but I, I was having an internal argument with uh, uh, uh an executive here at the company
2: mm-hmm.
1: with Rust. We, we, we were publishing it with a cloth cover, and you know it was like, all right, the book can either come out a month later with the cloth or it can come out a month earlier, but we just have to use paper. Um, and I was like, no, 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 it has to be cloth. We have to have cloth on this book. You know, I, I want, I want it to have this kind of old world feel to it. Right. Um, you know, because that's the kind of story it is. It's, it's a very kind of timeless Americana type thing. I want this to feel like a timeless book. And, uh, you know the the executive was like, oh, "No one will notice. No, it, it, that doesn't matter." And I was like, "Dude, come on, come on!" <laughs> you know, um, and uh, and it came out, and you know, so many people were like, "Oh, I love the way it looks. I love the way it feels," and y- you know that that kind of stuff has has a lot to do with it. So, absolutely. I think I I answered like eighteen questions there, except for the one that you asked. <laughs>
0: so <I don't> <laughs> uh No problem. I mean, you know. But I I wanted to also, you touched on Image, which I thought is interesting, because Image is obviously a creator-owned company. Um, And I wanted to talk to you about Arkea in in terms of creators bringing projects to you um, in terms of other rights, because I know you do, obviously, the Hollywood thing. Um, Some of the uh, uh, books that you guys have done have been made into uh, board games and role-playing games, and there's all kinds of different offshoots. where does the creator-owned uh, part of it take uh, – in other words, do, how much of the rights do creators maintain when they publish through Archaea?
1: You know, we, we have, we have a, a, one of the more interesting deals in, in the space because uh, the creators own the copyright to their material. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, the general deal is that we, we split everything with creators 50-50. Um, But what Archaea does is we also control the media rights Mm -hmm. um, to it. And, uh, you know, and and we kind of shop, shop the media rights around and and we're in charge of that basically. And the reason why we do that is because A, it's a very important part of our business. B, because we've sold properties to uh, certain studios in certain places before, uh, we can actually sometimes make more money for us and for the creators uh, you know, by doing it ourselves and instead of the creators doing it because we have these established quotes for, for what we do. Mm-hmm. But really more than anything, it's just that, that that's a huge part of our business. and you know that, that's kind of what we do on a daily basis. So uh, we're, we're actually kind of well suited to be able to, uh, to do that. So um, creators do on it is a 50/50 split. and you know there's there certain points where when books got to print or things like that, Uh, creators are able to get their complete uh, rights back to the projects so um so it's it's open it's to be perfectly honest it's it's not you know quite as uh open quote-unquote of a deal as uh um you know as image comics or dark horse or something like that
0: right but uh, but also it sounds like you do a lot of the legwork and a lot of the shopping around yourself as opposed to Again, I know of friends with creators that have image titles that literally have to do it themselves or find a manager or find an agent to shop it around for them. In other words, it goes to image um, and they're published through image. And then anything else that comes from it either comes randomly, you know, organically, like somebody happens to stumble upon their book or they shop it around themselves because image doesn't do that for them. You know what I mean? Exactly. Exactly. So, uh yeah, I was just kind of curious as to... Because I know that you guys are a creator-owned... You know, you publish creator-owned books. Um, so to find out kind of what your guys' philosophy was... And, you know, a 50-50 split is... You know, as long as they own that sort of... Uh, the uh, copyrights to their material still.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Um, now, uh, in, in terms of... Can you maybe tell me a little bit about what the submission process is like? Like, when you receive a submission... Do you, are you the sole person? Does it go to you, and then the publisher? Do the interns look through it first? How do submissions kind of go through Archaea?
1: The the it's so funny. The, the interns kind of look at them first and and log them in our in our submissions. And and we generally train our interns to see where it's like you know if to be honest, if if it's something where it's really if they see it, they're just like wow this is just not this isn't gonna work. <laughs> right. uh, you know they, they can sometimes disqualify it there but you, usually everything is entered into like a submissions tracking grid and then uh, Tay who Rebecca Taylor who's our main editor who handles submissions she will go through and kind of do a preliminary um, y- you know kind of weeding out of stuff that she knows is just not going to work for us and then <clears throat> it's, it's a very interesting process after that what we actually do is we actually get every single person who works at the company to read the hmm. and then vote on them. And um, I kind of have the ultimate deciding, uh, not deciding to vote, but it's like, you know, it, it, unless it's overwhelmingly, if there's a tie or something, you know, I can kind of be the tiebreaker basically. Right. Um, but, uh, but yeah, everyone gets to vote on them from, you know, Mike, our, our publisher, to Mel, the marketing manager, to even Scott, who... Uh, you know, does our graphic design and production? Um Everyone votes on, it, which, which I think is pretty cool.
0: Yeah, that is. I think Very
1: it's convenient. a it's a it's a fun way to to do it. Basically,
0: do the interns get a vote? Uh, they <laughs> no, they they don't. But you know, they they do get a
1: chance. I mean, that's the best thing about interning at a comic book. Com- I I, w- I can't recommend interning at a comic book company enough. I mean, that's it's the way that I got into the industry, and it's like if you're industrious. And you persevere and, you know, you can, I I don't want to say afford to, because I I was lucky enough to like start very early in college doing it. So it was just a summer thing for me.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: If you can do it, I highly recommend people, uh, you know, people doing it um, because it's just a great way to learn. It's a really, really good way to learn.
0: Right. I think what you should do with the interns is combine all of their votes into one vote. So give them one vote, you know, they can have our own little council and, you know, six to four for this new project. And then that counts as one vote. What do you think (laughs) about that? I I
2: love
0: it. Do you have any other thoughts or advice for sort of aspiring comic book writers and creators who, you know, are are a huge part of sort of our listening audience, Um, you know, from your experiences or any, uh, you know, thoughts that you may have for for them? we didn't go
1: aspiring
0: yeah. what, what, comic book writers and comic book creators um, yeah yeah I, I mean you know just, just it, it's it
1: sounds so stupid to say but just like um study the great uh, one of one of my favorite pieces of advice is very simple study the greats and become greater you know really dissect you know dissect what was this person doing how did they do it? Why were they doing it? What were the reasons behind it? You know How did they execute it? Did they succeed? Did they fail? What can I learn from that? I mean,
2: mm-hmm.
1: really, really study the greats and then bring your own your own way of doing it to the table. and you know you, you just have to you have to achieve excellence. Um, you know you you really do and I, I think the one of the best gauges that I've always used for if I like something or not is. Would I actually go into a comic book store and if I saw a book by creators that I'd never heard of before,
2: mm-hmm. would
1: I spend money on it and buy it and That's one of the biggest barometers for me for kind of figuring out if I like material or not you know it, it, at least in terms of stuff that's submitted to us sure is you know what would, would would i would I buy this myself if you know if Arkea wasn't publishing it basically right. Um, so just, and, and just persevere. I mean, it, it's, you know, it, it's so hard and it's so frustrating. Um, you know, just, just keep, keep at it, like keep at it. But at the same time, and not many people say this, if you keep getting rejected, right. really not that good, you know, and, and like you have to have kind of a, a hard, long look at yourself and look at your work and, you know, you have to really compare your work to other people. And if it's just not up to snuff and you've been at it for a long time and it's, it's not getting better, you know, you also have to know when to walk away. Right. There was a former intern of mine. We we stay in touch with all of our interns that we have. There's a former intern of mine that came back who has a project that they've been working on for four years that they'd written. And, you know, they wrote like a 600 page Bible and they, you know, Mm -hmm. wrote out, for like the f- first ten books in the series and stuff, and and I, he, you know, he, I looked at this kid and he was just like he was out of his mind. Like I I was actually genuinely worried about him because he was in bad shape, right? Um, because he was so obsessed with this, and you know, I he was like, "What should I do?" And I told him, "I said, dude, put it down and walk away. Put it down and walk away because you are." Developing and developing, and you're building all this stuff. And it's like you have in your head tied your success so much to this, but you're so embroiled in this that you can't see the forest for the trees. Right. You know, it's like go write a 10 page story on something completely different and try that. You know, like go do just go do something else. You know, you, you can't force an idea, it has to be the right time. You know, it has to be the right time for something to come. And, and you can't force, you know, a job or, or, or a project. And then you have to really kind of develop that internal sense like, you know, okay, this, this isn't going to work for me, you know.
0: Right, right. Um, what are some of the qualities that some of the uh, best writers that you've worked with have?
1: You know, I, I it's I value professionalism almost more than anything else. I, I I've said this about artists too, but it's like I had a friend who I used to know who was kind of like a uh, you know he's he's like a minus B- artist I would say like B B minus. Um, he went to work for Marvel, and it, it wasn't that he was a great artist, but he would get all the penciling work that he could ever want at Marvel, mm-hmm. not was good but because he could turn around hmm. an issue in three weeks
0: right right you
1: know, in three weeks he could pencil and ink an issue and uh you know like that kind of thing and, and he was a great guy too you know he, he's fantastic personality very professional and he did good work you know it, it wasn't any he was never going to be a superstar but he did good work right that goes so far. It goes so far because you have to remember that it's a business. You, you know, you're working for someone. Even in creator owned books, it's a business because it's like, we got to get that book out. We got to, you know, we got to communicate. We got to make sure, you know, it's going to be the best
0: thing that it can be. Right. Yeah. You, you're 100% right on there.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, and, and a lot of creators don't get that. It's a business. We, we, we did a panel once at Comic Con a, a year or two ago. Uh, it's at Chicago Comic Con. And uh, someone asked, I was like, what's the number one question that I should be asking myself when pitching to a publisher? And I said, you know, it's going to sound so mercenary to say, how can I make them money? Mm-hmm. How is this going to be successful? Because if, if, if you're someone and you can go to a publisher and you can say, all right, here's the marketing plan I'm going to do. Uh, you know, here's why this art is amazing. Here are the 10,000 people that are following my Tumblr right now. Here are the, you know, it's branding. It, it, it's branding and, and it's hype. So you, you get that and you get professionalism and, and, and you have writers that can be professional and take direction and deliver on time. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there's so, it's another thing I tell you, it's, it's so funny. It's like, um, it doesn't matter. Sometimes it doesn't matter if, if you can't deliver on time, but just just say that you're going to be late. You know, like don't say, "Oh, I'll get it for you tomorrow," and then tomorrow comes, and you're like, "Oh, I'll get it for you the next day." You know. just just be honest about it. People would rather hear when they're going to get something than like, you know, not hear at all, basically.
0: Right, or get excuses, extra excuses. Yeah, exactly. So,
1: so I mean, I, I guess that's some of the advice I would.
0: No, that's great. Uh, no, that's absolute great advice, and I think that's something that, uh, you know. Comic book creators and even screenwriters, I mean, writers in general, uh, and you should take to heart is that, again, it's first and foremost a business, and you have to treat it like a business, and you have to uh, deliver when you say you're going to deliver. Um, and that goes equally as far, if not maybe more so, than talent itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that people either rush and get material out just to get it out because they think that they're brilliant, or people who, I mean, there are some really brilliant people that take forever to develop material. Like, I mean, taking six years to write a screenplay, and scrub screenplay may be brilliant, but, you know, that's the one thing that you could sell, and then they know they're going to go into meetings, and and you're not going to have anything else because it takes you so long. Or, um, again, comic book artists or writers who don't deliver on time and just have excuses, or, you know, whatever. It's hard to work with those people. Exactly. exactly. Um, now, just on a side note, uh, I was looking through uh, the Archaeus catalog, and I, I found something, The Conspiracy of the Planet of the Apes, which was an illustrated novel, yes. um, which was not necessarily a graphic novel per se, but an illustrated novel, more of a novel with illustrations. Do you guys have plans to do more of that sort of thing? I thought that was kind of interesting.
1: Yeah, you know, we've that's kind of really the first illustrated novel that we've done, um, and and we did that because we have a long term relationship with Drew Gasca, who's, who's the guy who wrote it. He just did a Space nineteen ninety nine graphic novel for us.
0: Mm-hmm. I saw that one too. Yeah,
1: yeah, which is really good. It's it's a lot yeah, of fun. Yeah. And he did another. He did a creator own project of his uh, called Critical Millennium, which is also kind of a very uh, big epic sci fi space opera, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we we did that, and you know, it came out right around the time of the last Planet of the Apes movie. And it, it was it was a really fun thing to do. I mean, it's very cool to do an illustrated novel. I would love to do more of them. Um, the book sold well, uh, you know, but I, I think a lot of that had to do with. I mean, it was a great book, but a lot of that had to do, obviously, with the movie. Um, we just don't have any plans for more illustrated novels in you know immediately mm-hmm. in the new. Um, but it is something I would love for us to do more of.
0: Yeah, I mean, I thought that was, that was kind of cool. Um, <laughs> uh, lastly, I saw a book, one of your books, that has possibly the best title ever. It was, I'm Not a Plastic Bag, and that's absolutely pure brilliance. And from the synopsis, it sounds like a very meaningful book, too, which I wasn't expecting. Um, yeah. I don't really have a question there. I just wanted to tell everyone to buy I'm, I'm Not a Plastic Bag from Archaea, because I thought the title... Was awesome and it sounds really, really good.
1: That's a great book. If you have, if you have a young kid who you're kind of, it's it's interesting because it, it's a silent book. There's no there's no real words in it, so mm-hmm. it's a really, really, really good book for if you want to hand like an early reader or something. Mm-hmm. it's just straight up pictures. It's straight up visual storytelling, and it's about a plastic bag that gets stuck in the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. Which, if you don't know, what that? Is. It's essentially this giant island, the size of Texas, of trash that, ha- because of ocean currents, has kind of collected itself in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. It's uh, it's awful because it's a really, you know, it's a huge problem. It's a really, really huge problem. Um, but the book is kind of a, a silent story about you know a relationship between the past plastic bag and the garbage heap, essentially. <laughs> right. That's beautiful is beautifully done um Rachel Hope Allison is the author she, she's a, an amazing writer and artist but it, it's a very different and unique comic book so I, I would definitely recommend for fans of visual storytelling for fans of children's books people who want to kind of figure out you know what goes into making a good children's book That that's a great book to kind of pick up and dissect basically
0: right well I thought it looked fantastic and the title really caught me so Um, Yeah, I encourage everyone to check out I'm Not a Plastic Bag. (laughs) Um, Now, uh, before we go, we have a little section we call Rapid Fire, where we like to ask you some either-or questions. Excellent. Um, So, uh, let's get started. Uh, Mac or PC? Oh, Mac. Come on. (laughs) Uh, Lakers or Bulls?
1: Oh, God, that's hard. I grew up... Uh, in Chicago. Um I mean the, 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 I have to, can, I, can I pick a an era cuz if if it's an era
2: <laughs> Sure, go
1: ahead. The Bulls, and the Bulls man. That was watching Michael Jordan play back then was like watching an artist work. I mean he, he was an artist at what he did.
0: Right. So you pick the Jordan era Bulls. Yes, yeah.
1: And I'm kind of more of a Clippers fan than a Lakers fan, weirdly. enough.
0: <laughs> okay. No, that's cool. I mean they're they're Playing better than the Lakers, obviously, now. Um, and uh, they've got a lot of great young talent on that team. Yeah. Uh, I, I, for whatever reason, I can't get behind the Clippers solely because Donald Sterling owns the Clippers. And yeah, you know, just all the horrible, horrible stories about, I mean, I don't know him personally. He may be a wonderful human being, but from all the stories you hear, uh, which seem legit, uh, he just sounds like not a very nice person. So, um, anyway. Uh back to you, Stephen Colbert or Stephen King.
1: Stephen King. I, I love Colbert, but King is King's a legend. So
0: um Christy Turlington or Christy Brinkley? Uh
1: Christy Turlington.
0: Uh Muppets or Fraggle Rock? Muppets by far. Okay. And lastly, who... I, Go ahead. I, I love Fraggle Rock, but it's it's like Diet Coke
1: compared to Coke, you know?
0: <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, do you guys do a Muppets um, uh, adaptation, like you do for no. Fraggle Rock or Dark Crystal?
1: No, I, I wish uh, um, I, I wish we did, but Disney owns the Muppets, unfortunately. Oh, so I we, see. we do
0: not have the rights to them. Um, who would win in an editor-in-chief dance-off between you... Or friends of Script and Scribes, uh, Aspen Editor-in-Chief Vince Hernandez, or Oni Press Editor-in-Chief James Lucas-Jones, and why? Oh, man. Um, you, Vince, or James? I, I,
1: I don't want to throw down like this, but <laughs> I'm a great dancer. I can bust a move when I have to. So I, I invite Vince or James. We should all get together next Comic-Con and actually make this happen so we can answer this question once
0: and for all i think that would be fantastic i will videotape it and we will put it on youtube yeah and you know i
1: mean it's like i, I don't want to embarrass them or anything <laughs> and so it's like I, I think we should we should we should do it in person i,
0: I agree 100 percent. so i will uh forward this on to vince and james and let you know that uh, it's on <laughs> nice that's awesome <laughs> Uh, well, that's all the time we have for now. <clears throat> Thanks for joining me today, Stephen. Uh, you can find Stephen on Twitter at Stephen Christie. That's Stephen with a PH and Christie with a Y at the end. So it's at Stephen Christie. And check out Archaea Comics at archaea.com. And please visit our website at scriptsandscribes.com for more information on all of our guests, archived podcasts, and lots of other great written interviews and information. Uh, and if you have any questions about the craft or business of writing, you can send us an email to ask at scriptsandscribes.com or send us a tweet to at scriptscribe. There's no at in the middle there for some reason, just at scriptscribe. Thanks for listening.